Welcome to The Melon Tapes, the laid-back lo-fi podcast recorded entirely on cassette tape. And today's episode is about game engines. So, here we are. Um, this is a pretty interesting topic, especially this week. Um, as I'm sure many of you have heard, there have been some massive and quite unsettling sea changes to how the pricing model of the Unity game engine is handled, uh, or rather how it's set out. I'm not going to go into the details of it here because that's a, you know, a topic that is covered far better by far more accomplished people than I. But needless to say, it has been incredibly unpopular and terribly misguided at best. At worst, it is a money-grubbing kind of absolute bastard move. <laughs> so, yeah. Not, uh, not particularly good, and something that hits quite hard uh, to me. Um, I and, and many other people use Unity in our, in our daily, day-to-day operations, so, you know, not super good. But something I do do is I also use my own game engine. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about game engines in general, a little bit about how you can make something without necessarily in reinventing the wheel, uh, and also without tying yourself down to like a really large engine. A lot of people want to kind of move away from Unity right now, and are looking at engines like Unreal or Godot or Game Maker, and those are all perfectly great game engines. I'm especially a big fan of Godot right now. I've been having a lot of fun with making stuff in it myself. However, sometimes you don't need everything in the kitchen sink to make a small game. There are, you know, there are minimalist tools out there for making games. Things like, you know, Bitsy, um, things like Pico 8, that have very limited, you know, sets of tooling that make you very creative. But that's not what I want to talk about right now. Those are great solutions, but they are also complete solutions for particular problems to solve. What I want to talk about is, how do you write your own game engine? And what does that mean? Um, and is it as terrifying as it sounds? So, yeah, first of all, to preface, writing your own game engine doesn't necessarily have to be a scary or a difficult thing to do. It doesn't demand that you start pushing pixels individually one by one on your graphics card yourself. What it means is really just kind of recontextualizing how you use other tools and how you can combine those tools to make games. Um, so I like to call these small engines. I've, I've talked about this before once um, at, a, at a public talk I gave um, ages ago. But basically, the crux of it is you can string together a game engine and game editing tools from almost anything. And it still affords you much more control over what you make and of what, how you express yourself creatively. Um, now, I'm not going to say this is like something for everybody, but if you have even a little bit of programming skill, this is, this is ideal, <laughs> in my opinion. So let's get to it. So I use... Uh, for my spare time, a, a game engine that my girlfriend and I developed um, off the back of another small game framework um, called Otter2D. 
and it was by the indie game developer Kyle Pulver, uh, who made games like Offspring Fling and Bonesaw the game, uh, and other things like that. And it was a really inspirational little tool that I used for like tons of game jams and small games. Um, most of the games on my website that I've uploaded were written in that. And it was just a little C-sharp wrapper um, around some kind of, you know, standard convenience functions for managing objects in a scene and loading images and playing sound effects. Um, and I built lots of extra tools that would let me interface with other programs. So I wrote a little wrapper that let me load in the tile-ed, tile-editor map format. And so for the Tiny Melon Friend game demo I released back in 2021, all those maps in that game were written uh, using the tile-ed map editor. And they were imported into my game engine by this little, you know, little bits of piece of glue code. Um, I edited all my graphics in Sprite, and I wrote little scripts that would help me import uh, my animations from there. So I would make my animations in Sprite and use the tag system that Sprite has. And when you export a sprite in Sprite, you can say, oh, I want JSON files with this that tell me where the tags are and what frames they are. And so then I would have this code look at the tags, and using the names of the tags, I could insert, oh, I want to play a sound effect here, or I want to change some game state here. So, you know, I didn't need a big editor window that has an anim animation editor built in. I was just using the animation software that I was already comfortable with to produce the animation and write all the data I wanted. And then just a little, you know, a few lines of code that went in and reached in and grabbed all this stuff from the JSON file and then told Otter's animation system, you know, to play this file, you know, to, to load these images. Um, use these frames for this long, because all that data was encoded in the Sprite file already. And that didn't take me that long to do. That wasn't a years, years and years and years of effort to make this game engine, you know. Um, probably the longest part of it was writing kind of the combat and the physics, because uh, I had to do those bespoke. But that is also true of any game engine. If you make a game in Unity or Unreal, you're going to probably spend most of your time writing the gameplay code. And that is exactly the same for me with, uh, with Auto2D. And now my, my new game engine, um, game framework that, that me and my girlfriend work on called Lutra, which is Latin for Otter. So it wears its inspiration on its sleeve and, and calls it out on the GitHub page. Uh, I, I can put a link to, to this engine. Um, to the, the public version of it we have, which is it's missing you know, quite a lot of features right now, um, but has been used to port the Melon Friend demo and one of my other games. Um, yeah, so the, the key point that I want to make is that building your own game engine is as much an act of self-determination and rebellion as it is kind of a creative thing as well. It's, it's easy to kind of get the impression from people who make their own engines that it's kind of like, a, oh, I'm just super smart and I want to make smart things and I don't want to work with anybody and, you know, that's, you know, my way is the best way. It's really not so much that. It's really more kind of saying, I don't want to be subject to the same kind of forces, like market forces that shape these large engines. I don't want to be tied down by the decisions that work well for other games, but maybe not for mine. Um, and it's really kind of about taking the future of your work into your own hands. 
because if you need a new feature, you can write that yourself, and then you can reuse it whenever you want. And because you write it, it kind of shapes itself to fit your brain. It's like, um, you know, have you ever been frustrated by the way you had to do something in a game engine? It's like, well, when you have your own one, the way things work is the way you expect them to work, because you made them. Um, and you can have, you know, your own documentation for yourself. It doesn't need to be as maybe detailed or as complex as production documentation for other people's games, or when you're working in a team, obviously you'll need to make more detailed docs then for your, your co-workers. Um, but when you're just working by yourself, you can keep kind of a shorthand, you maybe just know how to use something because, it, like I say, it works in a way that you expect it to. Um, I think there's a lot of value in doing that. I think there's a lot of very important skills that you can develop by doing that as well. And it'll help you to understand when something goes wrong in a larger game engine, what it might be. Because, yet fundamentally, you're doing a lot of the same things. So, yeah, that's kind of my, uh, <laughs> my quick take on this, which is that you should not be afraid to experiment and to make use of tools that you already have in new and exciting ways. You can do all kinds of things with existing tooling and existing like parts of any digital workflow. Um, as long as you're willing to put up with a little bit of extra legwork here and there. I'm not going to say it's for everybody. I'm not going to say this is the way you should learn game programming or the way that everyone's project should be made. But I think it's worth challenging yourself, maybe at least once, just to try it out. Just to think, hey, you know, maybe I can make something. You know, maybe I don't need to download <laughs> 25 gigabytes worth of tooling before I can get started on making, you know, my little shmup game where I shoot spaceships. You know, um, there are so many reasons to to try this out and then give it a go. So I hope that that has been some something interesting to think about. Um, now, what I am going to do is I'm going to take a look at my mailbag because it turns out I actually do have a couple of messages today. So I'm very excited uh, for this segment of the show to to take off. So. I actually have two emails from uh, Kuiva. Um, and apologies if that's not how you pronounce your name. Um, my Gaelic pronunciation is mostly derived from what I know of Scots Gaelic. Um, so if that's Irish, I'm very sorry. Um, but uh, hopefully it was close enough. So the first message I have has the subject line, Snolf. And it reads, Snolf. Snolf, 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 Snolf. Snuff, 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 and yeah, you know, I agree very, very much in all regards on on that front. Absolutely, snuff, 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 snuff. But yeah, uh, the, the other email is a little bit more, um, how would you say, uh, regular. So here we are. So here it is, the other one. The subject is Melon Zone. How do you feel about the experience of making a personal website? It's a lost art in many ways. And yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that, uh, Kiva. Um, I, I have spent so long 
building and tweaking my website, which has been through so many revisions. Um, but it's it's very nice to have a little space all of your own carved out on the internet that kind of exists outside of the expectations of a platform. Um, and it kind of ties back to the main point of this episode. Um, so, so my website, I use a tool called Jekyll, which takes in plain markdown files, which are just, you know, text files with a little bit of annotation for formatting. Um, and what it does is it kind of mangles those up and using some templates that I've written um, and purchased, um, converts those into blocks of HTML and JavaScript and CSS, which is, you know, how you render a web page. But it means that there is no kind of like back end to my website, no database that it's pulling my posts from. All of those are written as text files and then just turned into plain HTML when I upload them to my website. I, I run them through the generator and then I just use FTP to push them onto the site. So there's nothing running on the website. There's no uh, processing load that's, that's taking up tons of CPU time or RAM on the actual website itself. So it's very fast to deliver it. Um, and so that means I can just use regular old text editors to put my site together. Um, the most recent thing I did with it was add the podcasting page and a template for podcast episodes so that the player embeds itself in the page and you can just listen to them in there directly. And yeah, that's been um, very rewarding. Um, it frees you from needing to learn like a complex tool like WordPress or something. You know, there's lots of options in something like WordPress. And instead, you can just focus on the important part, which is writing content for the website. Um, since I adopted that style, I do write a lot more on my site. Maybe not as much as, <laughs> as I wanted to or should. Um, but yeah, I think if more people had their own websites, they would feel, I think, a lot more able to express themselves. It is definitely a lost art. I think that it's, it's something that we moved away from. Um, kind of sadly. I, I feel like if there was a big like repository of all these style sheets and styling like templates for Jekyll um, that was like publicly available and browsable and maybe you could tweak it, you could change the colors and things, kind of like a visual editor for that stuff, then people could just write their content in short little text files and enjoy the stuff just showing up on their sites using a static site generator. I think there's definitely room somewhere for a kind of a tool or interface that would make this really easy for people to use. Um, yeah, I'd be fascinated to see if there's something, if there's any kind of effort towards that going on. Um, so I hope that answers your, your query. Um, and thank you very much for writing in. It's, it's, it's amazing to see a, an email showing up in that inbox. And uh, yeah, to ever all my other listeners, uh, if you have anything you'd like to hear me talk about or any questions you'd like to ask, uh, please write me an email at podcast at melon.zone um, or you can reach out to me on my socials as well if you want to. But yeah, this is pretty much uh, coming up to the end of the episode now. Um, I just want to say thank you very much for, for tuning in today and um, I hope you have yourself uh, a really nice day.